So we're moving into a time of listening to God's Word, learning more about who He is and His work in the world. And as I mentioned, we'll be thinking especially about Christ's ascension into heaven today. And I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, we're going to read uh, a section from the Catechism to start. And the scripture passage that I've chosen, I'm actually going to read that at the very end of uh, my sermon. So I think it's just a great way to finish it. And so we'll start with the Catechism and uh, we'll get to the scripture at the end. So, let's see. We're going to read three question and answers. Uh, question and answer 46, 49, and 51. Hear what God is saying to you this morning. What do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? Answer. That Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Question. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Answer. First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Question. How does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and keeps us safe from all enemies. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, Benefits. Benefits are good. They help cover the cost of important services like dental, physiotherapy. I went to the chiropractor again this past week, and I was shocked to only pay $7. Uh, that's like less than a head of lettuce these days, you know. Um, why that was the case is because I have benefits through my work that help to cover the cost of things uh, like going to the chiropractor. Benefits are things that you get. They are yours by virtue of the fact that you are participating in a certain job or company or relationship. Of course, of course, the focus is a little different when it comes to the benefits of being a Christian. Those who look to Jesus simply for perks or benefits are likely dis to be disappointed. Jesus wants disciples, not consumers. And yet, as the Catechism says, there are benefits to be in relationship with Jesus. His blood actually washes away our sins. His resurrection secures our hope. About a month ago, Pastor Brittany preached about the benefits of Christ's resurrection using the Heidelberg Catechism. And today I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the benefits of Christ's ascension, also using the Catechism. And let me be right up front in saying that I haven't always understood exactly what is good about Christ's ascension. How does his leaving benefit us? Wouldn't it be better if he stayed 
The disciples thought so. They wanted Jesus to stay and establish God's kingdom of righteousness and peace. And so when they meet on that hill, they're like, is now the time, Jesus? Is now the time where you are going to bring in God's kingdom? And Jesus looks at them and says, it's not for you to know those things, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then Jesus ascended. He went to the realm of God and the disciples are confused and they're left just kind of staring out at the sky, wondering what has just taken place. How does Christ's ascension benefit us? The Catechism lays out a number of reasons, and after pondering them this week, I will say that I have found a new, I have a newfound love and thankfulness for Christ in his ascension. I've st- distilled it down uh, to four, four benefits, uh, four reasons that the Catechism gives uh, for why Christ sitting at the right hand of God is a great benefit for us. And they are advocacy, power, protection, and hope. First, Jesus is our advocate in heaven. Sometimes we think about the ascension, the sitting at the right hand of God as being sort of the end of Christ's work. It's almost like his retirement day. You know, my work on earth is done. It's time for me to sit and hand off my work to other people to continue while I relax in heaven. But that is just not the case at all. Christ is not on vacation waiting for the consummation. He's hard at work, working for our good, working on our behalf. He is our advocate. An advocate is someone who fights for you. It's someone who pleads your cause. If you've ever been stuck in the hospital for an extended stay, you know just how helpful it can be to have someone at your side advocating for your care. And if you've ever been falsely accused, you also know the comfort of of having someone speak up for you. Jesus told his disciples that, that the Holy Spirit was going to be their advocate. He said, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. But in Romans 8, Paul invites us to see Jesus as active in heaven on our behalf, our advocate. Who then is the one who condemns, writes Paul? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In other words, Jesus continues to work for our good. His ascension is not his retirement date. In a way, it's his promotion into the throne room of heaven. And there he fights for the church. Sometimes it still doesn't seem like it would, it seems like it would be better to have him on earth, though. Isn't it better to have an advocate on earth than an advocate in heaven? Well, on the one hand, yes, that would be better. And yet, on the other hand, Jesus, his reach and effective advocacy, they go much further in heaven. You see, while on earth, Jesus lived a very local life. He was in a particular time zone, in a particular place, subject to the rules of space and time. 
But in heaven, through his spirit, he can be present in all times and in all places. He told his disciples that they would do greater things than him because he was going to the Father, and what he said came true. During his time on earth, Jesus did a handful of miracles. He discipled a handful of people, and he demonstrated the kingdom of God to a few thousand. But through the hands, voices, and work of his spirit-empowered disciples, Jesus has done millions of miracles, has discipled millions of people, and has demonstrated the kingdom of God to billions. The proliferation of his influence would not be possible if he was still localized in a particular area code. Although social media seems to <laughs> change the rules of the game a bit, you know, you can have a Twitter account and be all over the world, but I don't think Jesus would use Twitter. I don't know. Probably not. So, our advocate, Jesus is working on, on behalf of not just 12 disciples in Palestine, but a couple billion Christians on the earth at the same time because he has ascended into the throne room of heaven. And from the right hand of God, he gives the next two benefits in abundance, power and protection. Power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, Jesus promised. And at Pentecost, the ascended Lord poured out his Holy Spirit. Like a waterfall flowing down from heaven, Jesus baptized his disciples with power. Immediately, they were enabled to share the good news in languages that they could not previously speak. Peter, uh, the disciple who's spent most of his time kind of being confused, saying all the wrong things, he doesn't understand the gospel, he doesn't understand Jesus. Finally, Peter is made able to understand, and he stands up and he speaks with authority. He's given power to teach and to preach. Power was given to James to lead the church. Power was given to Stephen to testify in the face of his uh, persecution. Power was given to Philip to evangelize the Ethiopian eunuch on the road. Power like a general handing out different weapons to different officers, so Jesus hands out gifts and power to his disciples, and these are to be used for the common good and used for the mission of the kingdom of God. To some are given the gift of teaching, to others administration, to others are given the gift of healing, to others speaking in tongues or interpreting tongues, to others he gives the gift of discernment. And this is just amazing to me, but it's true. Every Christian community, small or big, has what it needs from Jesus to be effective. The gifts are in this room to be used for Christ's ministry in the world. The Apostle Peter applies this point to the church. I love this passage. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. God's grace, right? These things have been given by God. It's grace to the community. 
use this for the community's good. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus ascended into heaven, he is able to pour out these gifts on the church universal, and through these gifts, he continues his work in the world. And in addition to providing his people with what they need for the fight, our advocate in heaven also gives us protection. I think this benefit of Christ's ascension and reign is perhaps not as apparent as we'd like it to be. For ever since the beginning, the church has experienced persecution, and not in every instance have they been protected. Where was the protector of the church when Stephen was stoned? Where was the protector of the church when Christians were fed to the lions in Rome? I think a, a few things can be said about this, and I hope you can, you'll be able to see some of Christ's protection um, in some of the examples I'm going to share here. The first thing I'd like to share on this is that while it's true that Jesus doesn't step into every instance of persecution to rescue his own, it should be noted that his community, the church, as a whole, always endures. So I got an example about this. Here's a, here's a picture um, of a hill in Israel. Long ago, there used to be a big tower on the top of that mountain there that Herod built uh, as one of his fortresses. It uh, is called the Herodian. And Herod actually had the mountain, the whole thing, moved over a bit and built up higher so that he could have a better view, essentially. He wanted just a little bit better view, so, you know, get out the old shovels and move this mountain over just a bit and build it up a little higher. The fortress in its heyday was just monumentally huge. And um, it was sort of a testament to Herod's greatness, his power. I can move a mountain, it said, right? So clearly this man was powerful. And if you travel in uh, Israel today, you can see remnants literally all over the place of the monumental things that Herod built in his, during his reign. But Herod's dynasty like all dynasties, eventually crumbled. In the present, it looked as though he was top dog in the whole region, right? He gives a decree, and all the baby boys in Bethlehem are put to death. Herod is king. And yet, a few generations later, things fizzle. Things fall apart. Now think of Jesus in contrast to Herod. Jesus built no fortresses. Jesus didn't even own any property. Jesus had no biological children. But his influence has spread the world over, and it continues to spread. So here's another picture. And this, uh, it's, not, it's not even a very good picture. I, so I took this during my trip to Israel a few years ago. What, what I like about it is that, like, the symbolic presence of these Christians, we're standing on the top of that mountain 
We're standing on the rubble of Herod's palace. Um, and what that says to me, the influence of Herod is now sort of a, a park you can go to to see the remnants of it. But the influence of Jesus is alive and well. These are about 20 pastors you can see in that picture. Um, which is just a testament, I think, to the reality that the church always endures, which is because Jesus, our protector, is protecting us. In addition to this, Christians also have the confidence of knowing that in Christ, death is not the end. Jesus protects us through death. Another question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our only comfort in life and in death, we confess? The answer is that I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We're protected through death. Good story about this. In the first century, a man named uh, Polycarp was born. Polycarp was a second-generation Christian, meaning he was discipled by the apostles that Jesus discipled. In time, he became the leader of a church in Smyrna. In about year 160 AD, Polycarp was arrested for his commitment to Jesus. He did not resist it. Instead, he invited the guards who came to arrest him. Uh, to, he invited them into his house and, and uh, made sure that they were fed a meal. And then he asked for an hour of time so that he could pray and prepare himself for what was coming. The next day, Polycarp was burned at the stake because he refused to renounce Christ as his Lord. And the part of Polycarp's story that I love is the way that he served his captors a meal. Such calm, such poise in the face of persecution. Clearly, this man knew that he had already died and that his life was hidden in Christ with God. There is a protection that Christians have that death cannot take away. It's because we know that we are, our life is hid in Christ with God. Paul highlights the benefits of Christ's protection in Romans 8. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ, uh, Christ Jesus our Lord. Advocacy, power, protection, and the final benefit, hope. The Catechism says that in Christ's ascension, we now have our own flesh in heaven, which is, in a sense, a pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, to himself. In addition, we also have the Spirit as a corresponding pledge with us here on earth. 
It has taken me a long time to understand this aspect of the catechism teaching, but now I think I, I have finally understood this benefit, and I like it. The Bible, you see, tells the story of uh, the reconciliation of heaven and earth. In the beginning, God and the world, God, Adam, and Eve enjoyed sweet communion. God was present. The world was fully alive in his presence. But then that relationship was, was torn asunder. Adam and Eve, their sin, it caused separation, like a divorce. And misery and suffering was the result. But something changed in a beautiful way when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. In a very real way, a little piece of creation, human flesh, has entered the realm of God. And what's more, a little bit of God, not just a little bit, but God the Holy Spirit has entered the world and lives in us through faith. So do you see what's happening here? A little piece of earth is now in heaven, and a little piece of heaven is now active on earth. Human flesh is in heaven, in Christ, and God's Spirit is now in us. So think of these two things as uh, engagement rings, in a way. An engagement ring is a pledge. It communicates intent. This is the one I will marry. She is mine and I am hers. And one day we will be together as one. Well, the ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit is a little like the exchange of engagement rings. It's a pledge. It's a sign that points to and is a forced foretaste of the union that is to come. The ascension gives us hope for this great day of reunification. It points to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the new Jerusalem, we read in Revelation, will descend like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and heaven and earth will gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That day is assured, the ascension tells us, for our flesh is now in heaven with God, and God's Spirit is now here in us. The engagement rings of the new creation have been exchanged. Advocacy, power, protection, and hope. All this, all this belongs to us because of Christ's ascension. These are the benefits of participating in Christ. And what does this all mean for us today? How shall we live in light of Christ's ascension? What does this do to us? How does this reframe our living, our thinking, our relating to one another? Well, I'd like to let Paul take us out on this one, because I think his word to the church um, in Colossae is just so perfect on this. And I'd like to invite you to stand as I read these words. Hear God in these words inviting you to a certain way of life as a result of Christ's ascension into heaven. 
Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or do deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks today for your ascension. And we praise you, Jesus, and we thank you for the gifts that you give. It is a comfort to know that you are fighting for us, advocating for us, working for us, ensuring that we have everything we need by sending us gifts and giving us protection. We pray, Lord, that you continue to protect your church from all that does not belong. Protect us. And we pray, too, Lord, that more and more people might come to experience the goodness of all that is had in a relationship with you. Work through our ministry, Lord. Allow us to be your hands and your feet in this time and place. And fill us with hope, too, as we wait for that great day of reunification and that marriage, Lord, that is, that is coming. Fill us with hope as we wait. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.